Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. We're in a series right now, and even though it's primarily toward the family, but let me just say, this is for relationships. I mean, you could be here today and say, Mark, I'm single, you know, um, I think I'm going to stay single, or, or perhaps I want a family sometime. But for all of us here today, this is true for all of our relationships. I, I've been here, Marilyn and I've been in our church 37 years tomorrow. It is so hard to believe that. <laughs> As it feels like yesterday, Mary Ellen said, I can still smell the smells of the house that we moved into that day. But in, in the years that I've been here, I think I've probably done a couple, three dozen series on the family. And this series is going to be very different, though, because those series typically had to do with advice about specific relationships and, and the relationship between uh, roles in the family. This series is going to be about a principle, and you're going to take it and apply it. So if you're married, <clears throat> you're going to apply this in your marriage. If you're a parent, you're going to apply it, apply it to your kids. If you're a kid growing up at home, you're going to try to make sense out of your parents. This will, this will help you. Um, but on the other hand, it, it'll help you at work. It'll help you in any relationship that you're in. And so every week in this series, I'm beginning with the same verse, because this verse gives us the principle that works and makes all relationships work well. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 8, the Bible says, the one who sows or plants, that's a modern word, the one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction, or as one translation that expands things says, death, decay, and destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit, notice that flesh was not capitalized, but spirit is, because this is a proper name, proper noun. We're not just talking about a nature here. We're talking about a person. The one who plants to please the spirit from the spirit will reap life eternal. And as we've already seen for several weeks, it isn't just the length of life, but the quality of life. Now, if that language feels a little quirky to you, let me just kind of tell you what the Bible's talking about here. From the moment that you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you have two internal operating systems. You have the old nature that you inherited from Adam. And you say, Mark, I've been a believer for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. You still have this old system, and it's still powerful. But when you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you suddenly had another operating system, and way more than an operating system, what you have is the, the Spirit of God. And Jesus promised the Spirit of God. And, and, and I, I, I try every week to wrap my mind around this incredible concept and try to figure out how to explain it. We're talking about God in you. And someone could say, well, Mark, you know, I, I'm a Christ follower now, but there was a long season in my life where I wasn't a Christ follower. And to be honest, I felt like I had two operating systems then. Not the same. Because what we were talking about before we accepted Christ and feeling two different sides of us, we were feeling that old nature, but we were feeling conscience. And I never have known exactly how to explain conscience and the distinction between conscience and the Holy Spirit, but conscience is not trustworthy. When I was a kid growing up, there was a cartoon that said, let your conscience be your guide. That's one of the stupidest pieces of advice that people didn't get in church. <laughs> the problem with the conscience is 
The conscience is like an echo of something that was once there. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, were in the Garden of Eden, they were given that, that spirit. They were given the opportunity to have communication with God. But when they sinned, they died spiritually. And this is the best way. It's, there's surely got to be a better way of explaining it than this. But I've had friends who've lost limbs. And they would tell me that after the amputation, they still had a sensation of that limb being there. That's very much what conscience is like. That spirit is no longer there that we were created with, but there's still that echo of it. But you and I know that it's not trustworthy. I mean, 21 years ago, there were zealots who flew aircraft into the World Trade Center, into the Pentagon. In their minds, they were doing the right thing. They were going with their conscience. Problem is the conscience is not trustworthy. So I just want to make that really, really clear. What we're talking about when we talk about the two operating systems, we're talking about that old nature that we got from Adam. And we're also talking about the spirit of God who lives within us. This is why as a Christ follower, you can have the most beautiful godly thought. And yet a few moments later, you can have a thought and you're asking yourself, how can I be a true Christ follower if I'm having that thought? See, I'm, I'm just telling you, this is really important. And if you want to study this further and see it so clearly, in, I mean, it's all over the Bible, but if you want to study this clearly, look at Romans chapter six, seven, and eight, because the greatest believer who ever lived outside of Jesus said this about himself. We're talking about Paul here, wrote 13 books of the New Testament. Paul is like, I don't understand myself because the things I want to do, I, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. And he got so frustrated at the end of chapter seven, he said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And I don't want to spoil anyone's lunch, but let me tell you what he, what he meant there. The Romans who were in power at the time sometimes would have horrific ways of torturing people. And there was a particular form of torture in that season I don't know, Caligula may have been on the throne at this time, or Nero. But what they would do is they would tie a corpse. They would bind a corpse to a living person. And over time, as that corpse would decay, it would infect the living person. That's what Paul is saying. When he talks about his old operating system, he is saying, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this old system? Well, he answers that question. The worst place a chapter break has ever been in the Bible is Romans chapter eight, verse one, because that really belongs at the end of his question. That's where it says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who don't live according to the flesh, but live according to the spirit. Oh, that's not what I was going to talk about today, but that's worthwhile. <laughs> so think about what we're talking about in this season. The Bible says the one who plants to please that dead person, that dead nature, will from that nature, it doesn't say that God is gonna judge us, just from that nature. In other words, if I plant seeds in my old nature, I'm gonna start forces into motion that are gonna come back to haunt me. There's gonna be a harvest someday. But it works beautifully on the other side of this because if we sow to the Holy Spirit, then we're gonna reap life, length and quality. Someone could say, what do you mean by seeds? And if you've been with me in the series, you know the answer to this because I say it all the time. That's, this is the premise of this series. Here's what we have to understand, whether we're talking about a married couple or we're talking about parents and kids, or kids and parents, friends and friends, people dating. Every thought you think is a seed. It's not just something that flits there for a moment and passes. Every thought you think is a seed. 
Every attitude you hold, and this is a really important topic, and I think we'll talk about it sometime this summer. Every attitude you hold is a seed. Every word you say is a seed. Every action you perform is a seed. So all the time, we're in the process of planting. We're, and, and as a Christ follower, I still have that old side of me, and I have the Holy Spirit in me. I have to decide when I speak words to Mary Alice, am I going to plant those words in my dark side, or am I going to plant those in the Holy Spirit? If I'm thinking something about somebody, if I start letting myself get envious, or if I let myself start getting angry towards someone, what I have to understand is I'm a Christ follower. And you know, here's the problem. We, we don't typically go there. We say, well, that person made me mad. Nobody can make you mad. Let me, let me change the inference there, the, the, the inflection. No one can make you mad. That's way too much power to give somebody. So I got to look at that. Well, here's the thing. In, in upcoming weeks, we're going to get to lists. As I shared with you last week, I don't like lists. For those of you who love lists, you're going to love a couple of messages coming up. One's called the Jesus Seeds. That's going to be one of the most important messages of the series. And then we're going to have a message called Take These Seeds Out of Your Bag. But as I shared with you last week, before I get into that, I wanted to give you a couple of case studies. And last week, we looked at a case study for sowing to the Spirit. I'm an old man. I've heard thousands of sermons. I've preached thousands of sermons. And I've come to the conclusion that sermons typically fall into one of two categories. There are promise sermons. You, you come in, you hear what God has promised you. And then there are warning sermons. And I, I just really think most sermons can probably fit in one of those two categories. Well, last week was a promises sermon. And we talked about Joseph, and I really enjoyed that. I'm going to admit, I'm not going to have quite as much fun today, and probably you won't either, but I'm going to talk to you about a warning sermon, and it's critical that we understand that God put these stories in the Bible there for a reason. You know, <laughs> one of the um, oldest, dumbest sayings I've ever heard in my life is that experience is the best teacher. Experience is the most expensive teacher. Experience is not the best teacher. Somebody else's experience is the best teacher. I mean, it's such a horrible joke. I don't know why I'm telling it now. I mean, it's so politically incorrect. But there was a lady who was taking her little boy to school first day of first grade. He was just kind of a pill. And, and so she said to the teacher, if he acts up, just slap the kid next to him and he'll scare him so bad he'll straighten up. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> no one tells stories like that anymore. You know what? I've seen people have trouble and I've learned. I connected the dots. And that's what we're going to do. In the Bible, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, the Bible's talking about the stories in the scripture. And it said, these things happen to them as, next word, New Spring, examples. For us, they were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. That's you and me. So today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to flip the script from last week. Last week, we talked about a case study, sowing to the spirit. We looked at the life of Joseph. Today, we're going to look at a case study for sowing to the flesh. But before I, before I get there, let's try an exercise. Let's work on a couple of questions. I'm a big believer in motives. Motives are more important than actions. Motives explain actions. So since we're going to be talking about sowing to the flesh today, let me ask you a question. What would motivate 
a Christ follower like you or me, if you're, if you're a Christ follower, I know some of you are still searching and, and still thinking about it. I'm so thankful. But if you're a Christ follower today, what would motivate you to plant to the Spirit? Let's just say Mary Allen says something to me that catches me the wrong way, and I want to come back at her in a way that lets her know I was unhappy with what she said. What is going to motivate me at that moment to not give in to the impulse that I feel and plant to the Spirit? So think with me. What, what, what do you think would motivate a Christ follower to sow to the Spirit? Because she's going to have to go against her feelings. The word that comes to my mind is faith. Because faith gets me looking at the future, not looking at what's going on right now. Faith helps me take the long look. Okay, let's, let's look at the other side of that question. What would motivate a cross follower not to sow to the flesh? Could it be a healthy fear? Last week I talked to you about checking the price tags. I mean, there are times when I, I feel like doing something but I know if I do the wrong thing, there's going to be a harvest. I understand that if I give into the impulses, this is one of the most important things I'll say in this series. <clears throat> if I understand if I give into the impulses of my dark side, I just put part of my future in the hands of my warped nature. Remember our verse. If we sow to the flesh from the flesh, you're going to see that so clearly today, we will have trouble. So I'm going to realize if I sow to my flesh, I just put part of my future in the hands of my warped nature, part of my future in the hands of this broken world system and all the judgments of God that are upon it. Our case study might surprise you at first because even though I'm talking about sowing to the flesh, this guy, 95% of the time he sowed to the spirit. And maybe, maybe that's why he thought a little sowing to the flesh is not going to be a real problem. He had crops of sowing to the Spirit. I mean, a lot of ink is devoted to this guy. In fact, I would challenge you to find any character in the Bible who has more ink devoted to him than this man, especially if you include the book of Psalms. And I just gave it away, didn't I? Yeah. His name is David. Now let's take a moment and look at his history. First of all, he is a believer, he is God's child. He is anointed. In those days, kings were anointed. File that away. We'll get back to that. And not only was he a believer, he was a believer that he had a very special thing said about him. And I'm going to be honest with you. If you think I'm picking on David today, I, I'm not fit to tie his rebox. God testified about David. This is in Acts 13, 22. I found David, a son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. How would you feel about that? If God said about you, I have found a woman who's got the same heart I have. I found a man who's got the same motivations and heart that I have. And on top of that, he had won a lot of battles with his flesh. I mean, you, you don't, if you're a teenager, you don't walk down in a valley and go mano a mano with a nine foot tall giant unless you have some battles with your flesh before you get there. And that long protracted issue that he had with the king who wanted to kill him, Saul, and several times David had the opportunity to kill Saul. And even though Saul was trying to kill him, he wouldn't touch God's anointing. And he had experienced harvests of blessing. He was king now. <laughs> Somebody's like, well, Mark, you should have used him last week. A case study for sowing to the spirit, but I'm betting almost nobody's saying that because you know where I'm going. 
in a weak moment of his life, David is going to invite disaster. So since we don't want to do that, let's go into the lab and do a case study. What happened? And more importantly, how did it happen? I'm going to walk you through about four or five steps here just to give you an idea of how this happened or what happened. The headline. I mean, we would be in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's a really dark chapter. It always breaks my heart to read it. The headline, if this was being put in the newspaper, would be David slept with his next door neighbor, got her pregnant, and hired a hitman to kill him, her husband. But if you miss this first thing, New Spring, listen to me, Christian, please. I started to say especially men, but I think I'll just say everybody. Listen to me, please. If you miss this first thing, the headline will not tell you what you need to know. It started when David lost his focus. We see that at the beginning of this chapter. Now, one more time, 2 Samuel chapter 11 is going to tell the gory details about what happened with David. But before the Holy Spirit gets into the story, and he never wastes a word in the Bible, listen to this. It was the time when kings go to war. David sent out the whole Israelite army but David stayed in Jerusalem. There's no accident that's the first verse of our chapter because God wants us to understand there was a shift in David's life pattern. He had been a soldier. He had led his troops into battle. He's probably in middle age now. I don't know what happened. Maybe they were getting ready to go on a military campaign and some of his top brass said, hey, sir, we can handle this fine. No sense in putting yourself at risk. I don't know that. Maybe David decided, you know what? We can handle this fine without me. I'm gonna stay in the palace. Never forget, if you stop doing what you do, you may stop being who you are. And I understand there's gonna be changes in life. You get a different job. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying... If what you're about in life suddenly comes to a screeching halt and you don't have anything meaningful to replace that, watch that season. Because you see, David was accustomed to doing what he did. He did what he did. But now all of a sudden, we're going to watch David do something that's totally out of character. He's bored. And he's looking around for something to do. He's had an afternoon nap. And he's strolling around on the top of his palace trying to engage. He's like a spinning, in gear that's not in, a spinning gear that's not engaged. Let's read. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of his palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Now, we're going to talk about sex here in this particular story. But I want to stop for a moment and say, we could be talking about anything that could disrupt your life. Could be anger, envy, unbelief, anything that gives us the impulse to sow to the flesh. But now David is walking around and he sees his next door neighbor nude taking a bath. And before we get after Bathsheba, I want you to understand that the baths in those days were in the courtyard and they couldn't be seen from street level. David is up on top of his palace walking around. You can't tell me David didn't know better than that. And he walks around and he sees his naked next door neighbor. But I want you to notice something else because we're going to leave that first thing about losing our focus and we're going to go into number two. Number two could sound like B-roll to us, but it may be the catalyst to the whole thing because the second thing David does is he accommodates the impulse. Now, now, work with me for a moment. 
I mean, I think if you'd have met David at that moment, you said, David, you're about to blow up your life. You're going to sleep with your next door neighbor. David's like, I would never do something like that because I don't think he thought he would. He was just like, well, I'm going to play with this a little bit. Look at verse three. He sent someone to find out who she was. David's like, um, who's our next door neighbor over here? And he was told. She's Bathsheba. She's the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That's like David. Call it right now. This is somebody's daughter. This is somebody's wife. This is a precious person. This is a person with an identity. Her name is Bathsheba. That's David's opportunity to say, uh-oh, that was close. And I want to be real clear about something. I don't think Bathsheba has any idea what's going on. David says to one of his staff, invite her over for dinner. I just want to have dinner with her. And one more time, I don't think Bathsheba knows what's going on. She just, her husband is away in the war and all of a sudden the king uh, is wanting her to come over to dinner. Maybe he's going to have a whole lot of people there and, you know, I'll get to go to the palace. Beware of playing mind games with your dark side. I mean, this is silly, but I mean, this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. There was a guy that was hungry for a Krispy Kreme donut. And those things are, I started to say they'll kill you, but somebody could be here who works for Krispy Kreme. <laughs> they won't help you. There's a guy that he was, you know, he, he, he was hungry for a Krispy Kreme donut and he prayed about it. I've always been amazed how Christians will pray about sin. And he said, God, if it's your will for me to have a Krispy Kreme donut, let the light be on. <laughs> and he drove up and sure enough, the light was on. And he said, God, if it's your will for me to have a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts, let there be a parking place. And sure enough, on the 14th time around, there was a parking place. That's what I'm talking about. David's like, this ain't going to hurt. It's perfectly innocent. We just get together for dinner, a few drinks, a few laughs. I'm just being, being a good neighbor. Number three, David acts on the impulse. Second Samuel eleven four. When she came to the palace, he slept with her. I'm going to just say something here. I don't know what the involvement was of each person but I would point out the Bible does not reproach Bathsheba here. I would point out that when Solomon wrote Proverbs 31, he was most likely talking about his mother who was Bathsheba. So we just know that. I don't know exactly what went down, just know that David slept with his next door neighbor who was the wife of a noble soldier, a daughter of a great man, a person with great value. But David slept with his next door neighbor and he thought to himself, that's over. A little afternoon delight, going to move on to something else. I'm going to figure out something else to do in my boredom. Why is it we humans always believe that our sin is going to be uncomplicated? I mean, it looks that way when you see people in the movies, but I mean, why is it we believe our sin is not going to be uncomplicated? And it's like... 
Shakespeare's Macbeth soliloquy, if t'were done when it is done. And that's the problem. It's not done when it's done. There's sowing and there's harvesting. And David's situation is not over and it is going to be complicated. Verse 5, Bathsheba texted David. Okay, I just want to make sure you're still with me. Bathsheba sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. The harvest is starting to come in. This could be true of me or you or anyone else. Numbers 32, 23, your sin will find you. It doesn't necessarily say God will find you. It said your sin will come looking for you. And that's what's happening to David. I don't have a whole lot of time left, and so I'm going to borrow a little bit of time right here to make one of the most important statements I will ever make for your spiritual health. David has to decide how bad a harvest he wants this to be. Because this is going to get really bad. This is going to screw up a big part of the rest of his life. David's going to do a lot of other steps here that's going to make matters worse. But I will just say, if David at this moment, when Bathsheba said, I'm pregnant, if David had said, I've done a, I've done a really bad thing and I'm going to admit to it, I'm going to own it, I'm going to... You see, I've believed all my life, when you and I fall into sin, if we can do three things with that sin, we can kick the devil in the teeth and we can turn defeat into victory. The first thing, own it, repent, confess. Number two, learn from it. And number three, teach others not to fall into the trap. If you and I can do those three things with our failure, we can turn a defeat into victory. But unfortunately, David doesn't do that. I mean, surely he would have had some scandal. There would have been some difficulty, but he could have moved on. And his kids would have seen him owning up and being honest. That'll be important in a minute. Number four, David tries to cover it up. I mean, after all, where's Bathsheba's husband, Uriah? He's in the field. He's a soldier. We already saw him, verse one. It's a time when kings go forth to war. So David sends a message to his general and says, send Uriah home. I have an important dispatch for him. Well, you know what David's thinking? He's thinking, you know, he's been out there in the field. He's been away from his wife. He's going to come home. He's going to, he's going to go home, have a little R&R, &R, and a natural course of events are going to happen. And everybody will think the baby is Uriah's. And it doesn't work that way because when Uriah gets to the palace, he comes in to get the dispatch from David. And he's ready to go back to the field. And David's like, stay overnight. And he's like, sure, this is going to take care of it. But then one of his assistants came to him and said, Uriah, that, that soldier that came, he's sleeping in the palace and he won't go home. And so they check with Uriah and say, why don't you just go home and have some dinner with your wife and take care of business? And Uriah's like, I can't go home and enjoy my wife and my, my home while my brothers in arms are out there in the field. And this is terrible. It's hard to believe. I mean, this is what's New Spring. This is so hard for me to wrap my mind around. This David is the same guy who wrote, The Lord is my shepherd. He is the one who wrote, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all his benefits. And, and he's the one who wrote, But thou, Lord, art a shield for me and the lifter of my head. I mean, how does this guy who teaches us more about worship than anything else, anybody else in the Bible, how does he say, Well, let's get him drunk and see if he'll go home then? But even drunk, he has more virtue at that moment than this king. And then David does the unthinkable. He writes a message, 
puts it in an envelope, seals it, and says to Uriah, when you get back to the front, give it to Commander Joab. And here's what the message said. Put Uriah in the front of the battle where the men are sure to be killed. The fifth thing that David does, and I've watched people do this in the 45 years I've been a pastor, he sacrificed innocent people for self-preservation. And Uriah gets killed. But with all this, David's convinced that things are okay. I mean, if you want to see something cold, I know you don't, but if you wanted to see something cold, look at verse 25 of chapter 11, because Joab is nervous about this. He doesn't know why David wants to put one of his top soldiers in a place where he'll get killed. And when Uriah gets killed, Joab's afraid that David's going to blame him. He doesn't know all this stuff that's been going on in the backstory. So Joab said, Uriah is dead. And listen to what David sent to Joab. Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. It's all covered up, right? I mean, the Bible tells us in verse 27, this is the last verse of the chapter. After Bathsheba's time of mourning was over, David brought her to his house. She became his wife, bore him a son. And the last line of chapter 11, but the thing. I did a series back in 2014 called The Thing. It's on this story. But the thing that David did displeased the Lord. What's our verse? If we plant to our dark side, there's going to be a harvest of death, decay, and destruction. And the harvest started. Have you ever heard, you may have heard me say this, I've said it many times. The law of sowing and reaping is you always, you always reap what you plant, you always reap more than what you plant, and you always reap later than you plant. Watch how that first one comes into play here. You always reap what you plant. Okay. If you were to look at the story of David and Bathsheba, and if you were to try to put it in one sentence, I know some of you are writers. If you're going to try to put this in one salient sentence, <clears throat> what would you say about David? I think it would be fair to say David saw what he wanted and he took it. What do you think his kids are going to do? See, David has started some stuff in motion. He's planted some seeds. And here's the thing. Our kids are going to remember the times we sowed to our flesh way more than they're going to remember the times that we sowed to the Spirit. His kids are watching. This is a hard story, and I know our kids are in kids' world, so I'm okay talking about this for just a moment. But I'll try to keep it as euphemistic as I can. David has a big family. He's got a lot of wives. He's got a lot of kids. And one of his sons, Amnon, starts having a thing for his stepsister, And you can read the story. He sexually assaults his sister. He saw what he wanted and took it. David should have done something. I mean, he should have come down, as we used to say in Texas, he should have come down on Amnon like five ducks on one June bug. But he didn't. Mary Alice reminded me of a story I told in my teen years of preaching. It's a very, very old story. I'm a very, very old man. But I used to tell the story, and this is a true story, about a man who worked in a factory, and unfortunately, he fell into a piece of machinery, and, and clearly, he was dying. And as he was dying, he screamed out, can somebody tell me how to go to heaven? And it was just crickets. Nobody said anything. 
And he died a few moments later and there were several men standing around and one man said to another, aren't you a Christian? Couldn't you tell him how to go to heaven? And the guy put his head down and he said, my life sealed my lips. That might've been some of David's problem. I mean, how do you deal with Amnon when David did a version of the same thing? Well, Amnon has a full brother by the name of Absalom. And Absalom is watching to see what daddy's going to do. I mean, after all, it's his sister. It's his full sister who was sexually assaulted. He's waiting for David to do something for some kind of justice. But nothing happens. And every day when Absalom sees Amnon, his stepbrother, it just grinds on him what he did. And one day it gets to be too much for him and Absalom works out a plot where he is alone. Well, he's, he's with the rest of his brothers, but he has a near moment to Absalom and, and to Amnon and he demands that Amnon be murdered. One prince kills another. He just saw what he wanted and took it. But again, David doesn't do anything. I mean, Absalom goes to live with his maternal grandfather for a few years and David gets to missing him and he brings him back, but still doesn't deal with justice. And what happens at that point is Absalom, because his father still won't do anything about stuff, Absalom's like, maybe it would be better if I were king. And Absalom started a civil war, started a revolution, and David had to run for his life with his troops for a while. And eventually, in the war, his son Absalom was killed. Absalom saw what he wanted and took it. There's a moment where David is crying over Absalom. And these are famous words that literature has picked up through the years. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, would God that I had died in your place. Why do you think he said that? I think in his mind, he was going back to a rooftop years before when he was bored and he dropped a seed into his dark side. Let's you and me talk for a moment. Let's leave David out of this. Several weeks ago, I was just reading through the Bible. I was reading through Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is not a book that I read through a whole lot. It's kind of like looking at the world from ground level. But I came across a statement in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 that really got my attention and should get your attention too. It says this. Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to stink. So does a little folly in him or her that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. And that may not mean anything right now, right now, but let's work on that a little bit. Ointment there. What the Bible's talking about there is an, anoint, an ointment that was used for an anointing. I grew up in, in church, I, and unfortunately, I didn't get the benefit of kids' world. And it was very, uh, all of us boys were put in metal chairs, and we sat and looked at the teacher. And, and again, 99.9% .9 of you can have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm glad you don't. In those days, teachers taught with something called flannel graph. It's like this flannel board, and they would be 
characters that were cut out of flannel and they would put that up and they would say boys and girls and they would tell the story. And I remember when, when I was about five years old listening to a teacher teach about David, you know, and she put the picture of David up and this is way earlier in his life. This is when the prophet Samuel came to anoint him and she would so, show Samuel pouring oil on his, you know, put the Samuel character up with the oil and put it over his head. And I used to hear about being anointed with oil, and I thought, that doesn't sound very good. It sounds like you need a shower after that. <laughs> but that's because when I would hear oil, I'd think about Quaker State. Pouring Quaker State on your head. Pins oil. Motor, mm, 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 cooking oil. It wasn't anything like that. It's very different. I remember a few years ago, my wife said to me, Mark, I'm going to get some essential oils. And I thought, why are they called essential? Then I found out how much they cost. And I thought, now I know why. <laughs> but I remember, I was really intrigued by them. And, and, and they're, they had the most incredible fragrances. I, I never will forget the first time I smelled frankincense for the first time or sandalwood. No cologne can match that. And they, they believed to have certain medicinal qualities. And it was certainly true back in, back in Bible days. And so what they would do if there was going to be an anointing, there would be a particular formula that was used that was magnificent. And the fragrance was spellbinding. So when David was anointed with this oil, he was anointed with these, this magnificent concoction of essential oils. And the fragrance in his hair would fill the room and it would be attractive. But the writer of Ecclesiastes said something can happen to that anointing. Dead flies can get in the anointing and what was once fragrance begins to stink. Now here's what some of you are thinking right now. You're like, Mark, you're our pastor. You have an anointing. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have an anointing. You may have several anointings. In the New Testament, they're called spiritual gifts. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God has poured out his fragrance on you. You may be anointed to be a mother. You may be anointed to be a dad. You may be anointed. I mean, there, it'll take us a thousand volunteers to pull off New Spring this weekend. These people have an anointing on their lives. See, here's the thing. Anointing is spirit equipping, spirit enabling, and spirit calling. In other words, there's a job the Holy Spirit has for you to do, but we can't do it by ourselves. We don't even have the ability to even begin to do it, but he, he puts that, that beautiful fragrance. You guys are so kind to me. Every week, I'm going to get letters and things that you're going to send me where you just say, Mark, God is using your ministry to be a blessing to my life. But do you, do you realize I don't even begin to understand that? I don't know what God, I can't understand what God does through me. You're just as important as I am. This just happens to be my assignment. I mean, God does things that I, I, I mean, there are times when God uses a message that I bring to change somebody's life and I'll hear that story and I'll drive home to Andover and I'll open up my moon roof and I'll look up to God and say, God, you didn't do that in my life. I preached the message. <laughs> Listen to me, please. That anointing that's on you is perfect because it came from God. And you know what? When you're operating in your anointing, the gifting that God has given you, 
Oh, it's frightening. And it draws people to Christ. It draws people to want to know who you love, what you're about. And isn't it true? Because, I mean, you guys all know that. I mean, thousands of you know that, that being a daughter of God and, and, and fulfilling the destiny that God has put on your life, for some reason, there are people that just want to hang with you and they want to know more about your life and they just are attracted to you. They may be non-theists, but there, there's something about you. That fragrance. But then the word of God warns both you and me, a fly, a fly can get into the anointing. And then flies, see that's where some of you are right now. You know you're God's daughter, you have an anointing on your life, but there's some flies in your anointing. And if you don't do something about it, they're gonna die and they're gonna decay. And the anointing that you had on you at one time is gonna go from being fragrance to stinking. I've worked with hundreds of my friends that that happened to. You know what they said to me? Like, well, it's not gonna matter. Hey, you know what? Kids are resilient. It's so amazing. I've actually had people tell me, a guy, I mean, this has happened to me many, many times. A guy was telling me, I'm gonna leave my wife. His wife was a wonderful lady. And then he would say, but I met somebody at work and God brought her into my life. And then I'll watch those flies die and I've watched it stink and I've had those same people come back to me and say, oh, if only I could turn back the clock. New Springers? We don't have to worry about the anointing. That's not what we do. God does that. You and I have two jobs. Keep flies out. This is real, this is real complicated, okay? <laughs> Keep flies out. Number two, if flies get in, get them out before they die. Well, I know this hasn't been as much fun to hear as last week's, Take it from me, it wasn't as much fun to preach. But it's important. Would you bow your head with me for a moment? You could be here today and you say, Mark, I've, uh, maybe you're here and you say, Mark, I'm still intrigued with what you started out with. I, I would love to have God living inside of me. I, I know I have a conscience, but I just don't know if I have God living inside of me. How, how do I get that? Do I join your church? No. <laughs> Joining New Spring is wonderful, but it won't get you out of Sedgwick County when you die. No. Well, do I give money? No. Well, you, you must be saying in order to get God living inside of me, I have to turn over a new leaf and just, no, you can't do that. You don't have the Holy Spirit in you to empower you to do that yet. How do you get God inside? Good news, a gift. Jesus died. If you ever saw a picture of a cross and saw Jesus on that, Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins so that you could have an eternal relationship with God. I mean, Christ lived the life that you and I could never live then took that perfect life, laid it on a Roman cross and the way God saw it, the blood that came out of his body is a currency that pays for everything we've ever done wrong or ever will do wrong. And by faith, we just say, God, I want Jesus to be my king. I want a new way of living. I want you to empower me to do what I can't do by myself then you need to do this. Believe Jesus died for your sins. Believe he arose from the grave. Be willing to turn from your old way of life 
and invite Jesus Christ to come in and the gift will take place. I could be talking to somebody and you say, Mark, I've got some dead flies in my anointing. I want you to know the good news is our God will always meet you where you are. And he is a God who will forgive you. And he's a God who will let you start over. Before I leave today, and I know I'm in overtime and I'm gonna end real quickly here. But if you're here and you say, Mark, I wanna make sure that I have God inside of me, that I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. And these aren't magic words, but these are words that call out to God. And if you pray this from your heart, whether you're watching online or in North Auditorium or here, or watching on television, God will hear your prayer. Okay, I'm gonna pray it line by line, real slowly. You can decide if you wanna say these things to God. Here we go. Dear God, I am a sinner. I can't fix myself, but I believe you love me very much. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. And I believe he arose from the grave. And since Jesus is alive, I want Jesus to be my savior and my king. Thank you for hearing my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Before you leave, if you just pray with me, I have a gift I want to give you. If you're here on campus, you can get it today. If you're watching online, all anyone needs to do is take your phone out and text the word prayed, P-R-A-Y-E-D, to 97,000. If you're here on campus, you can get this today. It's a New Spring Bible, just like I preach from. A little book I wrote that'll answer a lot of questions called My New Walk with God. A journal. I think there's even some coupons for the coffee shop or something. So all it takes to get that is just text pray to 97,000. You can go out to any info center. You can tell them by this color and say, I pray with Mark. And you take this with you today. No strings attached. Thanks for being here. We'll pick this up again next week. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time newspring.org.